In Isaiah chapter 53, I just want to read one verse, actually one part of a verse of Scripture. And that's verse 8. I'm going to preach this morning on redemption as a matter of fact. Redemption as a matter of fact. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, the last phrase says this, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Speaking of the coming of the Messiah, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Then and over in Hebrews chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want to. In verse 12 it says this, Neither by the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Why don't we have a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. We ask that uh, your name might be exalted and lifted up, that our Lord may be lifted up. We may find ourselves where we belong in the dirt and lift our hearts up to see him who's altogether lovely, the chiefest among 10,000, worthy of all praise and honor. Put praise and thanksgiving in our hearts as we consider the glorious thing that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Help us to see and to appreciate what we have in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus Christ was stricken for God's people. Stricken for his people. For my people was he stricken. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 it says he accomplished redemption. He obtained it. He obtained redemption for his people. Now when people read verses like this, they usually come up with two opinions. One of them's right, one of them's wrong, but they usually come up with two opinions. One is true and the other is just a lie. It's not a matter of opinion, it's a lie. I was looking at a sign down in the rec room down there. It said, Jesus died for all men. Several years ago in 1954 in, in uh, Ashland, Kentucky, Southern Baptists got together and had a Bible conference, set up a big tent in, in Central Park in Ashland, Kentucky, and all the Southern Baptist churches got together and met for this. The, the, the motto that year was a million more in 54 and everyone a tither. That was their motto that year. And they made the mistake of inviting a preacher named Rolph Barnard. Rolph was a tall, gangly Texan had long earlobes, and they shook when he talked. He wore his glasses down over his nose like this, and he had a real high tenor voice would carry for miles. And the first words out of his mouth as he stood up that day at a Southern Baptist convention, he said, there's just two lies I want to talk about today. The first lie is this, that God loves everybody. And the second one is that Christ died for everybody. He said, that's the two lies, and that's two lies. These verses declare the truth about Christ's death. But men yet look at these verses, they look at the death of Christ and they say, no, that wasn't, he died for all men. But he didn't. He died for his people. But for my people was he stricken. And what happened on Calvary is clearly declared to be a success. As it says, he obtained, obta- he got it. Whatever he went for, he got. He obtained eternal 
redemption for us. Now those who hold and preach that He died for all men and paid the sin debt of all men and intended to save all men believe that Christ's death was at best a lame effort at salvation. Those who hold that Christ's death was for His elect, for His people, those whom He chose before the foundation of the world, those for whom He assumed the office of surety, they believe the truth. It's that simple. There's the truth and there's the lie. To believe that Christ's death was merely an effort to save all humanity is to assume is to assume that he's a failure because all humanity is not going to be saved. When he died, there were already countless people in perdition where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The Lord Jesus Christ died for every person in the world and some of those people perish eternally. At least in those cases, Christ is a failure. Conversely, those who believe Christ's death was effectual, it means it worked and that his intent was never to save all men, but to redeem his chosen people, those people believe the truth. It's that simple. Most people want to make it some kind of theological argument, but it's not. It's either the truth or it is the lie. How do we know what God intended to do? What he did. That's not hard to understand, is it? Read your newspaper. Find out what God intended to do. What happening in this world? That's what God intended to do. With the death of Christ, He intended to save His people, and He did save His people. Our Lord intended to redeem His elect by His death, and all God's elect have been, not shall be, they have been redeemed. That took place 2,000 years ago. Our Lord said it is finished. He used the word teleo, which means perfect. That's what He said. They translated it into three words. It is finished. The actual word is perfect. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he hung in agonies of blood, cried out with a loud voice, perfect. Same word is used in that, uh, that chapter in John 19 when he says, when he knew all things were accomplished. Same word, perfect. Same word is used in Hebrews chapter 10 when he says, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Same word. What does it mean it is finished? It means it's done. It means it's done. Terry's working on a Camaro in his garage. He said he's going to finish it one day. He may or may not. He's got a pretty bad cold. He might pass away and never finish that Camaro. We don't know. But if he does finish that Camaro, he's a, he knows what he's doing. He's a body man. He finishes that Camaro and gets all the door handles on and gets it shiny and pretty. The guy comes to pick it up. He's finished the job. If I walk up and say, wait a minute, that's not finished unless I believe it's finished. <laughs> you say, well, you're stupid. You don't have anything to do with it. But that's what people say about the death of Christ. He said it's finished. And they say, wait a minute, it's not really finished unless I believe it or I exercise my will to accept it. That's baloney. It's finished. Whatever Christ intended to do in His work on Calvary's tree, He accomplished. Our Lord said, all that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is my Father's will which sent me, that of all he's given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again in the last day. That's what the Bible teaches. That's always how salvation is set forth in Scripture. No other way than an absolute and complete success. 
The Lord Jesus Christ died for His people, and when He died for His people, He redeemed all His people. He saved all His people. He paid all their sin debt. What He intended to do, He did, or He's not God. He is a failure if He intended to do something and didn't do it. Just like you and me. If we intend to do something and we don't accomplish it, we fail. Isn't that right? How much more is that true of God, of whom it is said He cannot fail? The language of Scripture, when it talks about the salvation of God's people, always talks in positive, fully accomplished terms. Scripture says Christ has redeemed us, not shall or made redemption possible. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Scripture says, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away our sin. To put away our sin. Christ has purchased for himself a people. When Paul left, uh, left Ephesus to go to Jerusalem, he told the elders at Ephesus, he says, You fellas take care of God's flock. You're overseers of God's flock, which God purchased with his own blood. We understand the concept of purchasing something, don't we? You purchase something... Whose is it? It's yours. You bought it. You paid for it. It's yours. When Christ bought his people, he bought them with the price that God required for their salvation, and they are his. They're not, they're not, uh, nobody can say, well, part of it's mine. It all belongs to him. He has accomplished salvation. The Bible never speaks of Christ's death as anything, anything but an unqualified, absolute accomplishment. In this very chapter in Isaiah 53, when it talks about our Lord being made uh, sin for His people, in verse 10 it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. And that when that word pleased does not mean that God got some kind of vindictive, wicked joy out of uh, punishing his, his Son. It means that it satisfied God. That God was pleased with what Christ did. When it pleased him, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath made his, uh, put, uh, he has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Then it says this: He shall see of the travail. That little word "of" is very important because that means the product. Whatever that travail accomplished, he shall see that. He shall see of the travail, and the word travail, you women know what that is, us men don't. That's childbirth, pains of childbirth. I don't know anything about that. I remember when my daughter was born, there were so many babies born that night that I couldn't go in the room with my wife. There was 35 babies born, full moon or something. And they rolled her out. She was in labor. And I'd never seen a woman in labor. And, and, and uh, it was kind of scary. Because right there on the gurney, she had this horrible pain, and she made a face. And I said, take her back in the room. Take her back in the room. She went through childbirth. She went through childbirth. This is what this is talking about. He shall see all the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. What does that mean? His travail has never known a miscarriage. His travail has never known a stillbirth. Every one of his childhood children are born well, happy, and eternally alive. This is the guarantee. Now, this was spoken thousands of years before our Lord went to the cross of Calvary. Matthew 1, 21. Why shall you call his name Jesus? Why are you going to call him that? 
Why don't you give him a good old Bible name like Zacharias or Malachi or one of the prophets? Name him Isaiah, maybe Elijah. Why are you going to call him Jesus? Why are you going to call him Joshua? That's the Greek translation of Jesus is Joshua. It means Savior, Deliverer. Thou shalt call his name Jesus because he shall save, shall save his people from their sins. In this very chapter here in Isaiah 53, it says in verse uh, verse uh, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who did he make intercession for? His people, the many, who are spoken of in this passage of Scripture. His people. John chapter 10 said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Ephesians 5, I gave my life for the church. For the church. Scripture says, Our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a purchased or a peculiar people zealous unto good works. The Bible teaches that Christ's death was effectual to the salvation of those for whom it was intended. And everyone whom he had chosen before the world began are redeemed. They're not going to be redeemed. They have been redeemed. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When did this all happen? There's a very eternal aspect of this whole thing. Paul told Timothy, God has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Jesus Christ. When? Before the world began. It was ours before we knew it. What I do and what me and what these other men you have coming here preaching, what we're doing, we're not telling anything that you can do or some possibility, or some probability, or something might happen to you, or giving you something to try, we're saying God has done something. God has accomplished the salvation of his people. And if you're one of those people, when you hear that, that will be good news. Because if you're one of those people, you are a sinner, ruined and undone and unclean before, uh, before God, and yet before God in eternity, Christ had already taken your sin debt and signed his name to it, so you came to this world not owing God anything, Christ had already assumed your debt. And when that took place, when you hear the gospel, you don't hear, well, you know, if I do this or I do that, I can be all right. You say, everything is well. All is taken care of. Salvation is accomplished. Now, there are four gospel tenets or truths that declare this fact of this redemption of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on Calvary's tree. The first one is sovereignty. Folks love that word, who know God. They don't like it much don't know God, but the ones who know God love that word. Several years ago, there was a, a man down in Louisiana, in, in uh, uh, Baton Rouge, and he was of the Church of God, and he was a climber. He, they were getting ready to build a million-dollar assembly house. And this was several years ago when a million dollars was a million dollars. And he, the Lord taught him the gospel. And so he stood up in the church of God and started preaching the sovereignty of God, God's election, God's predestination. Well, they, they got mad. And right before they were supposed to start that building, they fired him. And they made this statement. They wrote a paper and they made this statement when they dedicated this church. The churches of God deny the sovereignty of God. 
That's what they wrote it. That's how they started the paper. Well, they just denied God. Sovereignty and salvation. This singular thing characterizes the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it is a work accomplished by someone who cannot fail. He's a sovereign. There was nothing in us or about us that could compel God to save us. But thank God there was nothing in us or about us that could keep Him from it. Because He does as He pleases in heaven and earth and all the deep places. He's God. You're not. He is. There's nothing about us. Our Redeemer is none other than God Almighty Himself. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's God Almighty. He's the... He's the heavenly Father, it says in Isaiah 9, 6. He's the eternal Son, the sovereign Lord over all. What does that mean? That means He's in control of all things. Don't try to figure that out, because we're in control of nothing. We think we are, but you don't take anything to put us out of business. Nothing at all. Christ is Lord over all. You know what that means? He's out of control. <laughs> He's out of control. We can't control it. We can't do anything with it. He just does as He pleases and does whatever he, he wants to do. And his death is the only death in the history of humanity that's called an accomplishment. You don't think they're going to stand at your casket, do you, and say, well, he finally done something right. They're not going to say that. His death was an accomplishment. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses came back to spoke, speak with him. That's recorded in, the, in, in, in Luke. Luke chapter 9. There on the mountain of transfiguration, Moses and Elijah talked to the Lord Jesus Christ. What did they talk about? Well, they must have talked about the awfulness of abortion. They must have talked about the political problems in America. They must have talked about, you know, uh, uh, drinking and chewing and going to the movie show. They must have talked about stuff like that. What did they talk about? The single message that's always been the message since before eternity and will be the everlasting gospel preached in eternity future, the death which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The death which he should accomplish. Why was it an accomplishment? It's not an accomplishment for us, is it? Death's going to take us over. We're not taking death over. Death is the final declaration that our will is nothing. Because everybody has what? A will to live. One of these days that will ain't going to work no more. But his death was accomplishment because he's life. Try to figure that out. I have. I've, I've pondered it. and then My poor brain don't go very far and it certainly hasn't got that deep. Life itself chose to voluntarily end on Calvary's day. He died. And that's our salvation. Our salvation is His death. His death. There's three aspects of the cross. What happened? There's, the first aspect is, reveals what men think about God. I know everybody loves this Jesus that they preach today, and He's such a sweet little fellow, namby-pamby, nobody, and wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings, and just a nice fellow and all. God allowed men to touch Him once in human history. And he allowed them because we know that when they came to arrest Christ, he said, I am, and they fell away backward and couldn't even get up just with words. Then he asked them again, whom seek ye? And they said, the Lord, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, I am, and he let them take them. But he uh, took 
There was a caveat there, if you read that. He says, you can have me. I'll give myself to you. You can have me, but these must go their way. That's substitution right there. These must go their way. He said that the scripture might be fulfilled, that all that God has given me, I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing. That's the first aspect is how does men feel about God? Well, God let him tell you one time. What did they do? They took a cat of Romans cat of nine tails and they ripped 400 and some furrows in his back. Cat of nine tails was a horrible torture weapon. There's a whip with nine lashes on it and pieces of stone or rock or metal in the end of the lash and it wrapped around the body and they pulled it across it, raked open the flesh. Full 40 lashes. Four of nines, what? 36, 360 furrows in his body. Put a crown of thorns on his head. They plucked the hair out of his cheek. They hit him with the fist. They hit him with the stick. Then they laid him down and drove spikes in his hands and his feet. Then they hung him up on the cross. What do men think about God? They hate God. We'll not have this man reign over us. Let's get rid of this man. He's nothing to us. That's the first aspect. What men felt about God is revealed in what happened in putting Christ on the cross. The second aspect is what happened in those three hours of darkness. And there's three hours of darkness, so all we can really do is speculate. There's a few hints in Scripture of what went on. In one of the Psalms, it said, Christ said, I am consumed with the blow of thy hand. When we were boys, we used to punch each other. I guess all boys do that, you know. We'd get out and we'd start with... Uh, roll up our sleeve and we'd take a lick on the arm and the other guy would hit back and then pretty soon we was hitting each other in the chest and we'd go home all bruised just see who was the toughest. Christ said, God rolled up his sleeve in these three hours of darkness and I'm consumed with the blow of thy hand. What happened there? God was punishing our sin for the transgression of my people was he stricken. God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ in those three hours of darkness. We don't want to know what happened. We don't know, we don't have any idea about God's wrath, and I don't really want to know, and I never will. I never will. By experience, know what God's wrath is. Christ bore the wrath of God in those three hours. But that was not our salvation. That was the punishment for an eternity of hell consumed in three hours in this marvelous, perfect sacrifice. Then the third aspect of what happened on the cross is our salvation. Jesus Christ voluntarily died. Why? Because the wages of sin is dead. We owe God a debt. And Christ was able to consume the eternality of hell in three hours. But then he came out on the other side of that alive and said, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he died. What happened when he died? His people, all of them, were redeemed. All of them. Why? Because his death was the death. His death was a sovereign of the sovereign Lord. The law was satisfied. Justice was satisfied. No more penalty. No more death. For The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was according to his own sovereign, immutable will. He was on control. He was in control on that cross. Men thought, well, he's weak. He's bleeding. There's nothing left of this guy. 
he was controlling the strength of the men who drove the spikes in his hand. He was controlling the words of those that, that mocked him and, and, and spat upon him. He was controlling all their actions. He owned that. It looked like a cross, but it was really a throne. He was sitting, he was on his throne controlling all that was going around him. This was a sovereign act, even over his own death. Christ determined that he would die before he even came into this world. He determined how he would die. He determined where he would die. When he would die, he determined who would seek his death. He determined, he, uh, he, he determined for whom he would die. All this before the world began. And in that hour, he accomplished that. And he determined what the results of his death would be. Because he's the sovereign. He's in absolute control. He's the Lord. The first word having to do with what Christ accomplished was sovereignty. The second word is success. Success. Since our Redeemer is the eternal Son of God, we can rest assured that His death and redemptive, redemptive work met with unbridled success. Isaiah prophesied that He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Now, how does religion paint Christ today? He's always discouraged. He wants, wants you to do something. He wants you to let Him save you. He wants you to, uh, you know, please uh, acknowledge Him. You know, just acknowledge Him. Now. He's not discouraged. Never has been discouraged. Lady told me one time, I don't believe in God. And I said, and God don't lose any sleep over. People think that somehow their actions affect God. They don't affect God. God is sovereign. You know what? One of the word holiness means separate. He's just above all. He's simply, not that he ain't involved, but he's not affected by what men do. Our Lord's Work on Calvary's tree was a success. Isaiah 42, 2 said he'd not be discouraged. Hebrews 10, we just, I just quoted part of it, but, but this man, after he had one, offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down, having finished the work, sat down on the right hand of the Father, expecting until his enemies had been made his footstool, four by one offering. He had, past tense, perfected, past tense, them that are sanctified, and they are sanctified according to verse 10 of that, by the will of God. What God wills, He does. That's simple. He never thwarted. Always does His purpose, and what He speaks shall come to pass. They gathered around David with their idols and said, Look at our gods, how beautiful they are. They're silver and gold. We carry them around everywhere we go. They're fine gods, good-looking gods. they got hands and feet and eyes and mouths. And look like men, creatures, they're wonderful gods. Where's your God, David? He said, Our God's in the heaven. He had done whatsoever he had pleased. What does your God do? He sits on a stump. You have to carry him around. He has eyes, but they see not. Ears, but they hear not. A nose, but they smell not. Feet, but they walk not. Hands, but they handle not. And you're just like him. You're just like him. You're just like your God. Our God is in the heaven. Wicked men are God's property. That's hard for folks to grasp, I guess, but it's just true. They're God's property. All humans are God's property, and they accomplish God's will even though they are not inclined to do so. Why did he raise up Pharaoh? To put him down. He said that in Romans chapter 9. I raised thee up, that I make my, my, my power known. I'm going to drown you and your whole army in the bottom of the sea. That's why he raised up Pharaoh. Shimei one day came out, David was riding. Shimei started to cuss at David. Cussed him out. And Joab wanted to take a sword and cut off Shimei's head. David said, oh, let him cuss. God probably told him to. <laughs> God, God bid him to cuss me out. Judas, 
church treasure. Betrayed the Lord. Why? Because it was ordained. I've chosen you. One of you shall betray me, he said. The Jews, the Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the king of the Jews, they all gathered together against Jesus Christ. Why? They hated him. But why? To do whatsoever had before ordained to be done. That's the first use of the word proorizo or predestination in the New Testament. It's about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people were acting exactly the way they wanted to. They wanted to kill him. They hated him. But they didn't realize it. They were like sheep being herded into a pasture. They were like dogies being punched by cowboys. They were all brought to that one to do exactly by the numbers precisely what God had ordained to be done. They were acting with the hatred and bile that was only could only be attributed to them. But they were doing it because God had ordained it. That's the way it would be. Success was guaranteed. Did Christ intend to put away sin? Then sin is put away. Did Christ intend to bring in everlasting righteousness? It says in Daniel chapter 9. Then righteousness is here and has been imputed. It has risen up. Righteousness is imputed. Did he intend to justify his people? Then his people are justified. It's much plainer than most people think. Did he intend to save? Then his people are saved. They're saved. The next word is substitution. Several years ago, Scott Richardson, you, I don't know whether you've heard him preach on tape or not, or knew Scott, a wonderful old West Virginia miner. The Lord called him to ministry. Great preacher of the gospel. We were down in Tennessee. It was June. It was hot. We were preaching at a church in Arno, Tennessee. And somebody mistakenly hit the heater button instead of the air conditioner button. It was already about 90 degrees outside in June in Tennessee. And Scott Richardson got up to preach. And Scott, you just have to see him. He, did, he was just a wonderful tough-looking, scrappy-looking guy, an old miner. And he got up to preach, and the temperature started rising in the church, and it got up to about 100 degrees in there, and Scott preached for seven minutes. He said, it's hot, and I quit. And he got down, <laughs> walked down the aisle, and I was on the end of the pew, and he, as he walked by, he tapped me on the shoulder, and he says, well, at least I said substitution, and just walked out the back door <laughs> into the 90-degree weather to cool off. Everywhere in the Bible, everywhere in the Bible, the sacrificial death of Christ is set forth as substitutionary. Christ died as a substitute. What does that mean? He died instead of me. He died, though I deserve to die, he died in my room, in my stead. Now, since the substitute died, those for whom he died will never die the death that he died. Divine justice will not allow them to die. You see, it's not only grace that saves you, it's justice and law that sets you free. If the law could now look at you which is with its searchlight of holiness from top to bottom and find one flaw, you'd have to perish forever. The law says about Terry Winslow of all people, the law looks at Terry and says, I find no fault in this man. It has to be that way or you perish. It's that simple. It's that simple. Substitution, when our Lord Jesus Christ 
satisfied the law for us, died in our room instead, then it was settled. The words of Christ say, The Son of Man came not to minister to, but to minister and give His life a ransom for many. It says, This is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Who are these many that are spoken of in Scripture? They are the many who were ordained to eternal life in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, who then believed. They are the many who were given to Him by the Father in all eternity. They are the many whose sins He bore on the cross. They are the many for whom he was, uh, His blood was shed. They are the many who were made righteous by Him, by imputation, who He was made to be righteousness according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. The, man who, uh, the many who call upon Him, the many sons who He shall bring to glory. Christ took the place of His elect on Calvary's tree. He substituted. What does that mean? God drew out His gun. and put a bullet in the chamber and started firing at me because I deserved death. Christ stepped in between me and God and took all the bullets. And no bullets left for me. He's my substitute. We see substitution in everything we do. We just don't pay attention to it. Do you know everything that keeps us alive keeps us alive because it dies first? It does. How many deer did you butcher last year? A mess of deer. Why don't you just go up there and eat them while he's on the hoof? Well, uh, they got to die first because we got to cook them. Every vegetable we eat. I had a good salad yesterday and lasagna. Ate too much. That salad, that wasn't alive. It was dead. They had to cut it off and tear it up. Everything dies. And that's just a picture of substitution in everyday life. We live off substitution. Our Lord substituted himself for us. He took my place. Several years ago, there was an old missionary named Paris Reedhead. He was somewhere in the jungles of some place. And he told the story of walking through the jungle and he had his bearers carrying his books and his tents and things like that. They were going to a place to preach the gospel. And off in the distance, he just heard a sound. First it was just a little, sound like a, a groan or a moan. He couldn't really make it out. As they drew closer, he began to hear it louder. And they came upon the clearing and there was, there was this leper sitting in the middle of a clearing by a little fire he had made. His fingers were gone. His nose was gone. Was just, his mouth had no teeth. It was just kind of an open, open gape in his face. And he was crying, help me. Help me. Help me. That's all he could say. Paris Reed had, knowing that this man was past human help, that he would soon die. But he looked at that man, he said, in order for me to help him, I would have to take him to myself and be able to take his disease and give him my help, to take his death and give him my life, to take his pain and give him my joy. Order, that's substitution. That's what Christ did for us. That's what he did for his people on Salvation Day. And the last word is satisfaction. The word propitiation, which is used four times in the New Testament, means satisfaction or appeasement. The sacrificial, substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ was a thorough <coughs> and complete and absolute 
satisfaction of God's justice for the sins of his people. He propitiated God and enabled God then to be propitious toward us. The death of Christ satisfied God. He declared that it was righteous in his act of saving his people. To declare his righteousness this time for the salvation of the elect. That he might be just in the justifier of him that believes on Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3. The death of Christ satisfied the debts of his people. We owe God a debt. Or we, we owe God a debt and Christ assumed that debt before the world began as our surety. Signed his name to our debt and paid that debt. He's satisfied. We don't owe God anything. Religion works on the fact and the hope that you can get people to believe they owe God something. They got to do this or do that in order to get a blessing. If you don't already have all the blessings you'll get, you're not going to get any blessings. You don't do stuff and get blessings. Well, you know, if I pray real hard, I'll be blessed. No, you won't. You won't. Well, if I give, I'll be blessed. No. If you're blessed, you'll give, and if you're blessed, you'll pray, but it's not the other way around. We don't do what we do because in order to be righteous or to get blessed, we do what we do because we are righteous and are blessed. It's a whole different, whole different scenario. Christ satisfied God, and God is satisfied with you. How many of you, when you hear that word, that God, because of the satisfaction of Christ, is satisfied with you? We know, according to Scripture, that God loves His people, has always loved His people. But do you know that he likes you? God likes you. So what about if I foul what, what about if I foul up? If you foul up? Silly. God likes his people. There's always a smile on his face. Now, are there things that you can do in life that will affect your relationship with him? But there listen now, there is nothing you can do that will affect his relationship with you. He has loved you from all eternity. He loves you now. He'll love you into eternity. And he likes you. He's not mad at you. Not a frown upon his face. He's happy with you. When he looks at you as his child, he says, look at that perfect thing. Look at that beautiful thing. Robed in perfect righteousness. Look at him. That's my boy. That's my girl. That's my girl. That's satisfaction. How can that be? Because you know and I know when we do something we shouldn't ought to do, we think, oh, God's watching. Of course he's watching. That's already affected your relationship with him. But it's not affected his relationship with you. He's satisfied. The death of Christ satisfied God. Satisfied the debts of his people. We owe God nothing but thanksgiving and praise. This is only good news to helpless sinners. The only good news to helpless sinners. This is the only source of peace and comfort in this world. The only source of assurance is what God has done for us. Most people, a lot of people in religion spend their life looking for assurance. Don't look for assurance. You'll never find it. If you're looking for it, you won't find it. If you stop looking for it and trust Christ, you'll have it. But you won't recognize you'll have it, you'll just have it. You'll be at peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ has a people in this world that He has redeemed, a people whom He has saved by His blood, and the gospel of particular accomplished redemption is the only way that they will ever be made aware of it. Or else they'll just flounder about in depraved oblivion seeking a Savior who cannot save. One cannot trust a Redeemer who only tried to redeem. Think about it. It's a sad estate. Men end up trusting their own will and their own decision, their own choice. The sad estate of those who believe that Christ tried to save people but couldn't is a truly sad estate. And I speak from experience. I spent a lot of years believing and a lot of years unsatisfied. The question is, who do you trust? Do you trust somebody that wants to do something but can't? I'm not going to do it. I took my car to Terry and said, you fix this? Well, I want to, but I can't. Think I'm going to leave my car with you? <laughs> no. People leave their soul with a God like that. Think about it. Those who hold and preach that redemption, the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ was an attempt at universal redemption teach heretical doctrine. They pretend to make wide the love of God for sinners, but in truth they diminish the love of God to an unrequited emotion, like a teenager in love with somebody that don't love them. Oh, it's such a sad deal. I've been there, you have too. Get all whiny and cry. It's unrequited. We want them to love us. That's what God, that's what they say about God. I just, he just wants you to love him. Won't you love him? Because he loves you. That's an unrequited love. No, no power in it. What kind of love is it uh, which has power to save according to Scripture but does not save? Is that love? See, some of you sitting with your children here. You used to love your children, don't you? They were out in the river drowning going down for the third time, you had the ability and the power to save them. And you stood on the bank and told them to make a choice. Told them to take the first step. Would that be love? Of course not. The thought makes us sick to our stomach. Universal redemption makes the love of God no more than a fickle, mutable, anemic, powerless affection. That's our love, really, in the long and tall of it. You all, we've all had our children sick and in bed. Some of them sick. We thought they weren't going to make it. And we sat beside their bedside and prayed and cried and begged God not to let them die. Let them live. Oh, Lord, let them live. That's our love. But our love couldn't do anything. God's love's not like that. If God loves someone, it's because he's always loved them. And God sent his son to redeem the someones whom he loved. Those who preach universal redemption make the wisdom of God to be foolishness. What man makes plans which he knows will never be carried out? None of us would do that. They say that's about God. Is there any wisdom in making a plan that is doomed to failure? Those who preach universal redemption utterly discount the justice of God. Justice cannot and will not demand a double payment for one debt. Justice cannot require one offense to be punished twice, both in the offender and in the substitute. Can't happen. Those who preach the universal redemption turn the power of God into pitiful impotence. He's the only potentate 
That's who God is. That means potency. He's powerful. Men declare that God wants to save everybody in the world, that he's done everything he can do to save them, but he cannot. That's not God. Not the God of Scripture. Can the Almighty fail? If yours can, he's not God. Will the omnipotent sovereign blunder? If yours can, he's not God. Has the will of God fizzled and the, man, the will of man flourished? Is the eternal creator subject to the puny creature? Is the power and will of God subject to the power and will of men? Please, where do they come up with this? They think themselves to be God. Those who preach universal redemption diminish the work of Christ on the cross to a nothing but a pathetic gesture of love at best. That's the way they talk about it. Christ died to express the love of God for you. That's a valentine card. What happened on the cross was not a valentine card. Not that empty. Christ came to redeem, to save, to justify. But if universal redemption is true, the only, He only rendered men redeemable and savable and justifiable. This is where we come to these things of titles in Scripture. Jesus is called a Savior. Why? Because He wants to save? No, that wouldn't make him a savior. That would make him a candidate for savior. But he's called the savior. And he's called the redeemer. Does he, is he called that because he wants to redeem? No, that'd make him a candidate for a redeemer. You see, the one who saves is the savior. And the one who redeems is the redeemer. And if he made salvation just possible or offered it to you, and the only way that salvation is effectual if you by your will or choice make it so, who's the Savior? Who's the Redeemer? You are, if that's the scenario. But that's not the way it is. The day of judgment, will Christ say, I loved you and had a wonderful plan for your life? And I displayed my love for you by dying for you, but my love could not conquer you. My love could not overcome you. I loved you too much to interfere with your free will and save you from hell. That's a sad God if I ever heard one. I believe I can take him in about two minutes of the first round. I really do. And not much to that God. He's a puny, nothing, nobody. Imagine. Imagine. Do men go to hell willingly? No. God's going to have to tie them up and throw them in there. They, they, they balk. They don't want to go to hell. God's going to have to cast them into hell. Now I ask you this, does he overcome their will to do that? Of course he does. And everybody in religion believes that. But there are some that stand and say, well, God won't overcome your will to save you. So he'll overcome your will to do you eternal damnation, but won't overturn your will to do you eternal good. Sad God that. Sad God that. Remember the story of a man who was from Bob Jones University was preaching out in western Kentucky. And he'd been all week giving invitations, trying to get people to come down the aisle. Nobody, wasn't much happening. And last night he was there, he said, he said, you better trust Christ. He's going to send you to hell. He's tried his best to save you. Now you've got to exercise your will and trust him. He's going to send you to hell. This old farmer got up 
doffed his hat and started walking out. The, preacher, the young preacher said, wait a minute, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. He said, well, if you leave here without trusting Jesus, he'll put you in hell. He said, no, he won't. He said, what do you mean? Well, he said, if he can't save me, he can't put me in hell. If I won't let him save me, I ain't going to let him put me in hell either. See you later. Walk out the door. That's the logical answer there, isn't it? When men look to their works, to their faith, they say, are my works enough? And they're not. Have I repented enough? Do I have faith enough? No. But your faith, your belief, your works have never been a consideration of your salvation. Not today. Your works, not a consideration of salvation. Never have been. Your faith. Well, everybody has to believe. Not all men have faith, but the ones that have faith get it from God. It's a gift from God. Those who preach universal redemption offer no encouragement to sinners. None whatsoever. No encouragement to believers to love Christ and praise Him because of His sacrificial death for us. It was just an attempt. Ultimately, I should thank myself. I should thank myself. If Christ did no more than save men, uh, no, no more to save me than He did to save Jesus, Judas, what's the big deal? Let's just close up this joint and open up a casino or something. Have a good time. My faith is praiseworthy if Christ only tried to save me. My faith is praiseworthy, not his blood. If Christ loved me no more than he loved Esau, then it is my love to him that's worthwhile, not his love to me that makes a difference between me and Esau. Those who preach universal redemption would rob God of his glory that's due his name. If you or I have any part in the salvation of our soul, that is any part, any part in the salvation of our soul, in that part, to that measure, we deserve glory. We do. If you've got anything meritorious in your life, then you deserve glory for it. And we can take that on into where you are now as children of God. What you do, the prayers you pray, the Bible you read, the times you spend at tennis, the money you spend bringing preachers up here to preach to you. All of that. Do you think for a moment that any of it will stand on its own? That is meritorious for God. If it is, then you deserve glory for it. But nothing we do from eternity to eternity and all our stretching time has any merit whatsoever. We are as utterly dependent upon grace this moment as the moment we first believed. And we'll be that way. And if we live to be a hundred years old and be good people all our lives and pray every day and read our Bible and attend church when it's open and give and sacrifice, none of it will count for anything with our standing with God. None of it. Or else salvation is not by grace. That's simple. We are utterly dependent upon grace. Always. You know what grace is? You don't merit it. You don't merit anything. That's what grace is. It's a free action of God that can never be explained, can only be rejoiced in and be thought, be, be prayed, God be praised for it. Because nothing about you matters. 
in the salvation of your soul. Think about that. And that's why religion don't like that. Sinners like it. Sinners who know there's no hope in themselves, who are ruined, dead, doomed, damned, and dying, who have no hope whatsoever, who they know that they're, they drink iniquity like water, out of their mouth comes lies and spews and venom, that they're corrupt and dying and a waste of time and dead and entombed and all those things. Sinners who are without hope are absolutely tickled to death that God did all of salvation because they know they had nothing and never had had anything and never will have anything that they can offer God at all. Salvation is in any measure the result of something man did for God, then God shall not have rightful claim to the praise and glory of it. Let me tell you, he's jealous for his glory. He's not going to give it to you or to anybody else or to any other rival. Those who preach universal redemption essentially deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if he's God and he came to save and he didn't save, he's a fraud and a liar and not to be trusted. But Scripture says he was stricken for the transgression of my people and he hath obtained eternal Redemption for us. That's the declaration of Scripture. We don't trust a failure. We don't trust a weak and namby-pamby nobody. We trust a sovereign, successful substitute who satisfied God for everything required for our salvation. I ask you again. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? God bless you.